How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Oh, very nice, Tom. Does anybody know what happened to Mark Stiles tonight? Gremlins. I mean, gremlins. I mean, I'm sure that he'll be back here. Uh, he was he was on and he's gone, and but he'll be back. But but let's get right to it. We have a remarkable, remarkable show tonight. We have a wonderful guest calling in from. Is it? Are you on Long Island, Hetty? Yes. Long and and the last name, Pagramansky. Yes. Did I get it almost right? You got it right, but you know, when when Eric, my husband. My late husband, when he became a citizen, he came home and he said, Hedy said, the judge said, it's customary to announceable names if they could change them. <laughs> and Eric said, Hedy, you are now Hedy Page. Oh! He said, we sir I circumcised it. I see. <laughs> well, that's a cut above. That's oh. <laughs> Had that one cocked and loaded. Oh, good. It's got another wrinkle to it. And then we also have Lisa Volpe here, who was on my show a couple of weeks ago, talking with Dr. Ann. But she's here really because she's the one who introduced me to Hetty. And I'm very delighted that you're here, Lisa. Thanks for being Thank here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You know, when when um, when we cross the ocean, my, my last name is Schrand. Um, and uh, so many people spell my last name S-C-H-R-A-N-D. My dad always said, when we crossed the ocean, we left the sea behind. <laughs> oh. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Hetty. Uh, so. Can you do puns also? <laughs> it's going to be that way the whole night. It's, uh, yeah. And you know what I would like? What's that? I read what I was sent about what you do. Yes. And my husband's story fits so into what you're speaking about because he was able to stop hating he was a concentration camp um, survivor and when he proposed to me he said there's some parts of my life that are a closed book and I can never speak about it could you settle for that and I said yes but that closed book dealt with the rage in him. He was filled with so much rage. And he suddenly realized that now that there was no one to have a rage against, he already hit the foreman in his first job and was fired. He already hit somebody in a, in a diner and was thrown out. And he said, I need this rage. And I watched him in the years of our marriage, how bit by bit he took it out. Because he said when there was no Nazi, no concentration camp guards whom he could hate. In America, he was able to suddenly lose the rage 
But he said, I have to go back to Germany and find out if I'm done with it or if it's still in me. And we went back to Dachau when the kids were, we already had children who were young adults. And after we passed Dachau, we went through it, looked at it, and we began to walk through the streets. And I said, Eric, how do you feel? Because I thought he would cry. And I had hoped that he would cry because he had never cried. And he said, no, he says, I'm just so happy. I'm walking here and I'm not hating them. And I'm not hating anybody anymore. I got rid of it. And when he passed away, which is four years ago, friends came to visit and one of them said, Eric, tell me again, how did you get rid of the hate? And he said, it took years, but whenever I was beginning to get enraged about anything, I would pull the rage out of my mouth and he would go like this. And I would look at it and say, is it worth it? And then I would throw it away. And there came a day when there was no rage to pull out. And I found myself underneath. I was there. Eric became who he was through doing volunteer work in the prison system. And people listened to him in a way that they didn't listen to to me or to anybody else because they sensed that he understood the rage they were carrying. So I wanted to speak about him also during this interview. Well, I'm so glad that, that we've started there. Yes. Sounds like a remarkable, remarkable human being. Yes. You know, anger is an emotion designed to change things. We get angry when we want somebody to do something different, start doing something, stop doing something. Rage is on that scale of anger. And there can be small angers, irritations, annoyances, but rage is the huge anger. So it is, it is an uplifting story to start with, Hetty, because this, yes. is, this is really what we're trying to do. The, the I am approach that we're talking about is about respect. Looking again, again look, respect. And when is the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect? Yes. You know? You know, I have a, let me say pen pal, but it's a friend and we communicate and she's in the armed forces and she said, tell me about dignity, because I think what Eric and other people who go through a lot have to deal with, that their dignity was taken away. How do refugees deal with dignity? And she said to me, Hedy, explain it to me, because you were a refugee. And I said, it's funny. 
refugees clean a lot. The first thing my parents did was to clean. And to this day, I need empty desktops and things like that. And yet, when I paint, I put in so many people. And then I have such joy when I'm at the end of the painting in making each one be visible and not being lost. So I think whatever we do in our life, it traces back to who, to who we are escaping. It's a remarkable, remarkable story. Um, your paintings are just so full of life. Is that, is that something that was by design or was that something that, that no. came out because of past experience? They're it so full of life. It comes. It comes because of my background. I had an amazing father. We were in Panama, we escaped to Panama and the heat was unbearable. And that was 1938 and nobody knew about air conditioners. And he would sit there at, at breakfast and in Panama, if you had your elbows on a table, if you lifted them up, they stuck because it was Panama. Yeah. <laughs> and we were Europeans who were not used to it. We had winter and summer. And my father would sit there in his underwear because we were as little as we could and take his coffee and say, but no son of a enjoys that first cup of coffee like I do. <laughs> and I find that I feel that about everything, but nobody enjoys a street like I do or enjoys a person like I do because no matter what the situation was, he enjoyed it. So I have to say thank you to him, even though he passed away a long time. I, there are so many people who influence our lives. Yes. You know, tell us, if you could, our, our listeners are, are wondering, who is this person? We have this remarkable person here. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your story. Because I know that, you know, you, you, you sent me, a, I don't know if you know this, but I, I read a little bit looked at your website it's, it's fascinating but tell my us grandson, about my grandson did the the website it's it's yes great. For, you know and, and for me I, I always thought a website was something you cleaned up after a spider um but so let's let's hear about hetty take okay. us back okay okay in panama wait 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 wait, wait. go back further how did you get further. Panama? okay Vienna was wonderful. It was wonderful. My father had run away from home when he was very young. He was born in Poland to very poverty-stricken family. 
and and what happened I guess so much of my life goes back to that even though I was never in Poland and it was a very religious family and when he played his father would say how can you play when Jews are dying and they had a little store and my father's job was to go at the end of every month to go to all the neighbors and borrow money that they could pay the rent and then they would pay it back until that they could borrow again the next week or the next month whatever it was but for that little store my grandfather sent my father once to a traveling salesman to buy things for that little store and i think this shaped my father's life more than anything else because he wrote a book for me about his life and that's one of the best chapters he went there and this man was eating a meal the likes of which my father said his family couldn't even eat on a friday night there was so much he described chicken soup with fat rings of golden yellow fat floating in it i'll never forget his words and enough chicken for a whole family and it was at that moment that he knew he would run away from home and go to vienna and become a traveling salesman so that he could eat like this for the rest of his life and he did that and when he collected the rent once he looked at it and he said this can never happen again if i don't do it now i'll never be able to go to vienna and he bought a ticket for vienna and a hat so that his payas could be hidden a green hat so that he would look like an austrian and two oranges i believe in a chocolate bar mm. and he went to an uncle in vienna and said i'm going to work free of charge and every penny that i should be earning you need to send to my father because this was the rent money that i was supposed to pick up by the way years later in panama when he became an accountant in a country club and he felt that they didn't pay him correctly for a vacation so he went to the safe and he took out the money and he left the note saying you owed me this i took this much oh. it should have been the money that you gave that that you owed me they did arrest him but they let him go again <laughs> but in other words i grew up with that mentality you can do anything if you can only not do damage mm. and i i'm not able to speak about me without bringing up my upbringing of course of course okay. so so you were in vienna then is that that's where you were born yeah yeah but we got 
visa from an uncle in Panama in 1938, and we went to Panama. But, but wait, before, before we get you over to Panama, so let me just understand this, because, uh, you know, 1938, this was World War II. Um, Nazi Germany was on the move. They were rising up. What, what was that like for your family, for those times that you were there still in Vienna? We went into, we went into, um, into hiding in our apartment building. And, you know, I speak in schools sometimes, and I always tell this part. My brother and I used to walk to school in Vienna every morning. And in a building, these were apartment buildings, and in an apartment building on the side, there was some young women who always waved at us. They even came down once with chocolate for us. And the stormtroopers, a group of stormtroopers began to walk through the streets one morning. And I don't remember seeing them, but those girls did. And one of them had a born friend who was with a Nazi uniform and he was there. And she said, I want you to go into that building across the street and look for which apartment has a door smashed in and find out the name of that person and find out what he looks like and go get him. And he said, I can't do that. She said, go. And he went and he found the broken door in my parents' apartment and said to my mother, what's the, I am the boyfriend from the girls who always wave at your children. What does your husband look like and what's his name? And she said, his name is Jacob Kelman and he's short and has red hair. They walk through the streets for every group where Jews, it was only men who were gathered at that time. And he would go up to them and say, who is Jacob Kelman? And they kept walking and looking into groups until one had my father in it. And he yelled, come with me. And they walked my father, either he or there were two, I don't remember that part of the story. They walked him until it became dark. And then they had a friend and they took him to that friend's room. And the next morning my father came home and I'm alive because all people of a different group do not have to be evil because these people risk their lives. Yes. So I'm glad you asked me about that. But I make sure if I speak in the school that I mention that because it is so easy to hate a group and I don't want them to. Right. And really this is part of what we talk about all the time here on the Dr. Joe show. You know, and, and now with um, 
with coronavirus, uh, it's, it's not the same as having one group of people who are persecuting another. And I, I really am very honored, Hetty, that you're sharing these stories with us to talk about what it is like to be a survivor. But now what we're finding, I think, with corona is I think it's the great equalizer because it's not discriminating. It's not one group against another. It is basically saying that we are one group. It's called humanity. And we must come together now in a way that we never, never even imagined before. And so your, you know, your story is, is powerful. So there you are, somebody from that other group, from the Nazis. The dangerous group. Has saved, basically come to save your family. Yes. Saying, and and the, the imagery is clear. Yes. You can't lump people together. You can't say this, this entire group is bad. There, there are always people who are truly humane, human, who recognize but, the need. But if people do not let them know about it, as you do, if there is no voice in the wilderness, then the wilderness remains. Mm. And what you're doing is opening up a door that people can enter. That's what we're hoping. Everyone is welcome. Yes. But you know, the word of, say, of which I've heard about the China virus, it's being ridiculed, and that makes me happy. Mm. Though, you know, it's funny. Charlie Chaplin was in a movie about the great dictator. And my father was so angry about that movie. He said, because, because you must never make fun of something evil because it makes it last. Hmm. So, so that's the humor of calling it the Chinese flu is as dangerous I, as any prejudice. I agree. I, I think it, I, I don't find it a funny thing when they say it. I think they're just trying to cast blame and this yes. is the last thing that we need right now. Exactly. In the world. We, we don't need finger pointing. Right. Uh, we need hand washing. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. Somebody once said, and I don't know who it was, but I read it somewhere, that the only way for people to begin to be kind to each other was to have aliens from outer space come and, and here is the flu. No, absolutely. We've been talking about that. And, and this, is, this is one of the, the things that, that I'm also talking about with, with our guests and with Tom and Mark is we, we can't always come together because we have a common enemy. We have to come together because we are a common species. Yes. Because we are one group. It's not about having an enemy. Right. Let's just come together. 
Tom, what, what do you think about this so far? You've heard Hetty's preliminary. Yeah, and I just got to say, it's, it, it's, it's a ballsy thing to say that like the Nazis, these Nazis saved my dad's life. Like, uh, you, you like the ability to see good in people, even when they're marching down your streets, potentially threatening your life and liberty. Uh, that's a kind of patience that I don't know if I will ever be able to have. Uh, and you, it's like these amazing stories, like Victor Frankl, like being able to objectively look at people in the camps, like there were good among the bad, bad among the good, but they were all human. Yeah. But some people find it so comforting to say I'm better than them. Mm. And so they create groups who are inferior. I think one of my great heroes has always been that march with no guns yes. against the British. That was what Martin Luther King went to speak to him to learn peaceful non-resistance. And I think that's one of the greatest. Gandhi? You mean Gandhi? Yeah, Gandhi. Yeah. That's, well, I think that's one of the greatest stories of our greatness. That Mahatma Gandhi said, I go, I come to you without weapons. And people followed him. Yeah. So that's human also. Oh, absolutely. Mark, what do you think? Well, Hedy, I'm wondering, after your father was, was saved, how long were you in the apartment in Austria? Um, in August, we got out. And I don't know when the Hitler movement, when Hitler came in, I believe it was March. So it was about that long. About six months. Yes. You know... You were I want to tell you something. When we got the tickets for the ship, my father said, we are going to go and look at the ship. And my mother said, Jack, you're crazy. If we go into the street, they'll kill us. And he said, no, only if we look as if we don't belong. We're going to get dressed the way we would on a regular walk. And we're going to go to the docks and look at the ship. And she said, they'll kill us. And he said, only if we don't look as if we belong, mm -hmm. we're going to go. I would like to send you a copy of the photo I have of the, of the four of us. Oh, please. Yes, okay. And, and you're a genius with computers. It's on a computer. Could you send it? Thank you. <laughs> To have a son-in-law like that is a miracle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't don't tell your daughter. There's there's a phrase, behind, like behind every great son-in-law is an astonished mother-in-law. So, <laughs> actually, it's more like a son. So wonderful. The in-laws is not necessary. So, so there you are. You you've been you've been in hiding for six months. Yes. You get these visas. Your dad says, we're just going to walk as if yes. nothing's going we on. Belong. 
as if we belong as if we belong yeah and there and you're you're about, about we did. seven eight years old by this time or i by i was close to nine by then close to nine okay because when we got into panama i was just nine but we went there and it was the united fruit company ship and we stood and looked at it and somebody a young definitely Aryan said to us, why are you looking at that ship? And my father said, just looking at it or something like that. And he started a conversation with this guy and my mother was pushing him. And finally that man went away and my mother said, why did you keep him talking? He could have thrown us into the water and that would have been it. And he said, no. If I wouldn't have spoken as if I belonged, then we would have been in danger. Yeah. Because if it were normal life, there's no reason why I wouldn't have spoken to him. Mm. We, came to, we came to America and all my dreams vanished. Because in Panama, okay, let me come to Panama first. Okay. My first best friend was Chinese. At that time, Chinese people were not allowed into the United States. If they were had a paper saying that they were going to work in a very dangerous job, they blasted into tunnels and so on for air, for railroads then they could come in, but otherwise Chinese were not allowed. And my other friends were every color. There was prejudice there too. The people were very, very darkly black. Probably recently from Africa, they were looked down upon. And San Blas Indians who were tiny people who walked like this with their heads bent. They were very tiny and they were Indian. They were laughed at. They were called machis and they could only do things like cleaning streets and so on. So prejudice existed even in Panama. But when I came to America because of my white skin I could go anywhere. And that was in 1948. Mm. And it was a terrible feeling because if you've been an underdog and suddenly, and suddenly you're told you have to create other underdogs, you're free. I decided I can't live in America. And I decided that I would go to Israel and live on a kibbutz. A kibbutz is a communal settlement in the desert. And if that was like 1948 or 49 or so, Israel yes. had just been created. I was listening to the radio at the UN. I mean, to the radio of yeah. the UN program. 
of when America cast the vote that it, Israel could exist. Right, 1948. Yeah, I remember crying because we went to a camp upstate where they were training us how to clean toilets and work on the ground. And the, the whole theory there was work is honor. Who you are is the quality of your work that tells us. We were not even allowed to say please or thank you because it was taken for granted. If something had to be done, I don't have to ask you. You would do it immediately. And the person who did the most amazing work in that group, her name was Hadassah, and she was the daughter of an American rabbi who said women are equal to men. And she insisted on working on the land and everything. So she was the first suffragist that I really knew. And her husband was named Avram. And he was a farmer. And she was an intellectual. And don't ask me how they had the wonderful marriage they did, but they did. Mm. And there I met Eric. And Eric had come straight from concentration camp to New York City. And he was able, he was good with his hands, but he couldn't speak English or Spanish. So he got a job in a factory immediately, but he couldn't speak the language. And a friend, a young black man became his close friend and one, it taught him what to do. And one day Eric said to him, you know, you've got a girlfriend. I'll get me a girl and we're going to go out together. And the way Eric tells that story, his friend stood up like this and said, look at me, Eric. I am black. You can go into places where I'm not allowed to go. And this was in America that that New was York. happening. New York. Not Israel. This was in America. And Eric said at that moment, he realized he couldn't stay here. Mm. He couldn't live in a country where he would have to say, I'm better than you. So he ended up in that same communal camp. And that's how I met him. In Israel? No, upstate New York. Upstate New York. Liberty. Huh. Right by Liberty. Huh. And... Eric was very strong in making, making no difference in who people were. My kids, when the, hip, when the hippie period came, they felt like hippies. And we would drive, Eric was a bus driver part-time, going up to the mountains with short line. And Joni, my daughter, was 16 and she wanted to go to Woodstock and we had no idea what Woodstock was. So Eric was driving us and suddenly one of our kids said, look, those are our people. And there were kids with hats and looking like hippies. 
And I'll never forget what Eric said. He says, there is no such thing as our people. Don't ever use those words again. What do you think he meant by that? Everybody is our people. Uh, yeah. Don't segregate. Right. One sec, Hetty. So I, I just want to bring Lisa into this. Uh, so, so Lisa, you've known Hetty, and, and you, you wanted me to meet Hetty, and I, I think I understand why now. But do you want to just say what, what Hetty has meant in your life, and, and why you wanted her to, to come on the Dr. Joe show? I'm very grateful that you did. Well, first of all, Lisa is a dear friend. Yeah. And. She talked about you. And when she explained you, I said, yes, I'd love it. Hmm. And that's exactly it, Hetty. Every time we have a conversation, yeah. it is always about how you respect people and how we all treat people. Our conversations, Joe, are always about what's going on in the world. And we met actually um, after President Trump was uh, elected and there were a lot of people in our neighborhood and our group of friends who were sort of anguished and needed to talk to other people and we formed um, a group sort of loosely called the subversives and we got together every two weeks either at my house or our friend Anita's house and Anita and Hetty have known each other for many 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 years and we all talked about the things that concerned us. And we tried to figure out ways to contribute to society that were positive in what we felt was a very negative atmosphere. And that was how I met Hetty. And we just hit it off. But our conversations, we meet um, maybe about once a month at our friend Anita and Steve's house and we have pizza. And often I make ice cream, so we have something good for dessert. And we just sit and talk about what's going on in the world and how we would rather perceive it and how um, our sense of respect for people in the world is really what carries us through. And we, we, we I mean, there's a genuine love that's grown yes. out of that feeling and yes. that need that we share. So that's why I thought, I mean, it fits perfectly into the I am, doesn't yeah, it? It does. And, and just just to tie things together, uh, Anita's husband, Steve, was on our show as well, talking about sports and baseball and his career as, as an incredible um, sports reporter and journalist. So this is the part about the I am that I think a lot of people have difficulty with. But I believe it. Everybody has an I am. The idea is everyone is doing the best they can at every moment in time with the potential to change in the very next second. Uh, and we can't judge people for whether they're good or bad. That's their I am. What I'm saying is let's look again at why we do what we do based on the influence of four domains, of your home domain, the social domain, which is everything other than your home, the biological domain of your brain and body, are you hungry, are you tired, are you digesting lunch? And the I see domain, how do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? Human beings are very interested in what other people think or feel, we call that empathy. But what we really wanna know is what are you thinking about me? 
And the stories that you have told us, especially you know, about your dad and his awareness that people were seeing him a certain way, but he adapted to that so that he could get his family on that boat to safety. But instead of us judging other people as evil or broken or less than, the I am is saying, let's look again at why people do what they do based on the influence of the domains. Why, why was Nazi Germany the way it was in, because of its home and social domain? And why, is, why was America in the 1940s saying, Chinese can't come here? I mean, we don't have to like it, but I want to understand it. I want to look again at why people do what they do based on the influence of the domains. And that's where these words, look again, again, look. Again, to repeat something, look like a spectator. Let's respect why people do what they do, which is different than liking it. And I think a lot of people have a hard time with this. A lot of people say about stuff that's happening right now that they don't respect what's going on. And then they get angry. And then the people around them get angry because if you don't feel disrespected, you don't feel valued. And if you don't feel valued, you're going to activate a part of your brain that becomes very defensive, angry, sad, or depressed, or scared. But when is the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect? I mean, you just you don't. Your brain just can't do that. Right. But it's hard. It's hard because we don't always realize that when we are disrespected by someone, that doesn't mean we have to do the same thing in return just means, well, geez, why is the best this person can do be disrespectful to me? Now, that doesn't mean that I have to condone it. And the other person's going to be held responsible for it. But I want to understand it. And, and that's part of, of why, you know, I, when I was listening to Lisa talk about you, I wanted you here. Because I think that, that you are exemplifying this not just a tolerance, you know, we've already, you know, you got to tolerate other people, but embracing them. Can we just shift and pivot for a moment to your artwork? How, how has your artwork been a vehicle for the expression that you have of this remarkable appreciation of who we are as human beings? You know, I was lucky because in Vienna, I had the same teacher, first, second, and third grade. And when we send you the photograph, I'm going to send you the story I wrote about her. Okay, great. Because she just had us draw. And she was so amazing that when Hitler came in her classroom, I had absolutely no fear. Hmm. And when Jewish children had to leave the class to go to a different school, beginning of segregation, she didn't, the way she did it, I will never forget. 
She said, I would like the Israelite children to come to the front of the room. She wouldn't say Jewish because that was a frightening word already. The word Yuda was very scary. Mm. And so we were a few little girls and we went to the front of the room and somebody said, why are they going? And she said, oh, they're just going to a different school. Don't worry, it's a good school. And there was never any hate in that room because she didn't have hate. But she knew that she was walking on a delicate trail that she would be killed if she helped us. So when what she said in the history class was, we are like a little jewel, Austria's a little jewel, and the whole world wants it. So Hitler came to protect us. That's quite, quite a spin. Quite a spin. Years later, I wrote a letter to some, well, that's another long story, but they said, the school you came from is a hundred years old. Could you write a letter to them and tell them? And I wrote a letter about Frau Lehrerin Vogel and the answers I got were wonderful. One woman wrote and said that my daughter couldn't write nicely and she was afraid of learning. And Frau Lehrerin Vogel, when I told her about it, she invited my daughter to come to her home. And she sat her at the table and said, you are a princess. Sit straight like a princess. Let the world know you are a princess. Mm. And she said, and my daughter became not only a wonderful writer, but a proud person. Yeah. So that's who this teacher was. And, and you know, this is part of, of what we see throughout all the child psychiatry, that the resilient child has had at least one adult who believed in them. Yes. And I, I want people to really hear that when, because you have that opportunity at every moment in time. We all want the same thing, which is to feel valued by somebody else. Yeah. And at every and any moment in time, you can remind someone of their value. And whenever you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. And I think that that's what, that's what you were experiencing and what your daughter experienced. But may I tell you the, another result from that? Yes. When, when my youngest was going to kindergarten and I suddenly had free, more freedom, I called the Red Cross and I said, I would like to teach children how to draw, mm. but they have to be very poor children. They have mm. to be children who would not have the opportunity otherwise. And the woman, her name was Estabrook, her last name. That's easy to remember because there was a pen called Estabrook pens. And she said, we don't work with children, but for the first time ever, 
there's an opening for classes for women in the Nassau County Jail. Would you be willing to do that? And of course, but I knew that there'd be no money because if I teach them to draw, when they leave, they couldn't afford materials. The women in that class were all black. White people did not end up in prison because these were not high profile crime crimes. And I brought little twigs that to pick up in the ground that had branches, for example, one little twig sticking out. And I had people go like this. Let's say it's a curve. Take your finger and run it along that shape and then do that same shape right next to it. And then take another curve, do it with your finger and then do that same shape next to it. There was one woman there, they understood. It was easy, it's pencil, you can erase. There was one woman, a huge angry woman. And she was, I worked there for five years doing this. She was always in and out because if somebody said something against her, whoops, she'd throw them. And an angry woman. And she came to me once and she said, could I show you the tree I made? And because they could only show it to me if they wanted to, I didn't ask to see. And there was this delicate, incredibly beautiful set of branches, like Orientals do, you know, these Oriental drawings, which are very simple. It was so beautiful. And I looked at her and what hit me at that moment, so this is who you really are. They gave you the wrong body. Mm. But this is who you are. And so when I paint, I need to know the person. I'll take a photo also, but if I can possibly have them speak to me, because my paintings take a long time. I'll go into an area for perhaps a year and be there two or three times a week. The first ones only took a few months, but the better I got, I got at doing resemblances. That's great. So yeah. Hedy, we, we only have a, a couple of minutes left. I ask all my guests this, um, because with the IM, the four domains interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. Small changes have big effects. What small change can you recommend to our listeners that they can make to get through this, their, this own isolation and this own hiding that we're all in from coronavirus? The same change that I'm still working on on myself. Find out. Greg once said to me when I was speaking against the present way of politics. And I said, 
I'm going to ask somebody. And he said, but you have to listen. You have to listen to the answer. And Greg, that's the hardest thing I had to do. Let me give that advice because you find out it's so simple to say, I was wrong. But if you don't train yourself to admit that you were wrong, That's great. then if you, let's say you're with family and you're stuck for the duration of the virus, yeah. all the little things that bothered you have become big. Mm. Do what Greg said. Ask them what bothers the most about you and listen. Great. And I thank you. I thank you for this program. Ah, uh, wait, wait, wait. We've got one more. The second thing, because everybody's interested in what we think or feel about them, everybody has an I am. You control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Hetty Page, what kind of influence are you hoping to be? I would like to learn not to judge anything ever, anytime, if I don't know the basics, the base of that person, because I find it very easy. It took me so long to look at people who were not, who were not taught what beauty is, because it's always what you wish you looked like, mm -hmm. right? And to see beauty in a homeless person. Because what I do mostly with pencil are the homeless. Yeah. It's an I am. Everyone's doing the best they can. WATD listeners, I really appreciate you listening because small changes have big effects and a virus could not be smaller. And look at the big effect it's had. Hetty Page, thanks so much for coming in tonight. <coughs> Lisa, thanks for introducing thank me. You. Tom and Mark, we'll be catching you soon. Benipotent, thank you. And the Dr. Joe Show, we will be back next week. Thanks, Hetty. And thanks to your son-in-law for putting it together. Cut off his ear.